During the Palestinian uprising in the 1980s, uh, the Israeli army decided to punish a village nearby Bethlehem for not paying its taxes. Um, the commanding officer at the time uh, decided to round up all of the village animals that, that the villagers owned and to put it in one large barbed-wired pen uh, to, to keep them from them. The next day, a woman comes up to the commanding officer and comes to his feet and pleads to him for him to be able to release her sheep back to her family. And the reason, this is, the reason why she's asking this is because this is her only sense of livelihood. Her husband is dead, and, and she not only needs to provide for herself, but also for her children. Now, the commanding officer looks at her and says, listen, there's, there's no way that I'm going to be able to tell which of these are your animals, which of these are your sheep versus all of the other villagers. And so she asks him, if I have a way for me to be able to, to identify the sheep that are mine, would I be able to take them? And he agreed. So a soldier opens the door to the, the large barbed wire pen and her and her, her son come into the pen and her young son takes out a small reed flute and decides to play a tune again and again. And as he plays this tune, all of a sudden, you see these sheep heads pop up from among this pen one by one. And as these heads are popping up, he turns his back and walks out of the pen and starts to walk home, followed by 25 sheep. This is an amazing illustration of uh, the relationship between a sheep and a shepherd. And this is the exact idea that Jesus wants to communicate about our relationship to him. And uh, we're going to see that played out really well in our text. Our text that we're going to be looking at today, it comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 10. And we're going to look at verses 11 through 18. So why don't you follow along with me as we read those verses? It says this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. You know, as we look at this passage, we are met with Jesus. What he's doing, he's making a comparison between a shepherd and a hired hand. And as Jesus was speaking this, I mean, it was a danger to be a shepherd. Now, kind of when I think about a shepherd, I just think it's like a a guy in some like nice free-flowing clothes with good, you know, good uh, wind that gets through there, gets to lay down in some, um, you know, some green pastures with a cool stick and gets to just listen to podcasts and, and watch some sheep. I mean, that sounds pretty good to me. But the reality is, is that, that that 
clearly is not the case of, of the dangers of a shepherd. Now, uh, in the Middle East, even today, um, during the months of October to March, there, there can be a lot of good rain that comes by and, and does really bloom all of those fields and the plants uh, to be able to create great pastures for sheep to graze and, and for them to be together. Um, but for most of the year, the land is inhospitable. I mean, the desert is a, is a hard place. I mean, water is scarce, and so is the food. And, and there, are, there are danger wild animals all over the place um, that a shepherd would often have to fend off. I mean, in, in the eastern sides of Judea, there are these huge cliffs, these eroded cliffs that, that even stretch up to thousands of feet where they have to be careful that their sheep do not run off of it. And so there was really just a life-threatening aspect in being a shepherd. And, and really, in addition to this dangerous terrain and, and, uh, and, and being able to find food, um, the shepherd had some, some hard work. Often when they stopped in a specific place, one of the things that they would do is they would um, find a way to be able to create like a, a makeshift uh, pen for their sheep. Now, sometimes if they were going to be there for a long time, uh, they'd make these out of stone. But for, for the most of the time, when they were going to have to move around, um, they would just make these out of whatever brush was near them. And, and, and so they would create this brush. And, and around that brush, they would have only kind of one entrance and exit that you would be able to walk in and out of. And, and sometimes they would make a, a makeshift door there uh, so that they could kind of open and close it. But a lot of times the shepherd would in himself become the uh, become the door. He would literally lay his lay himself down when they were going to sleep and put himself between his sheep and anything that was a danger from the outside. I mean, this is the, the life of a shepherd. The only things he had to protect himself was maybe a crooked stick and a slingshot. Now, a hired hand was someone who was supposed to do the job of a shepherd, but any time danger would come, uh, a hired hand would, would flee. Or a hired hand, when, when they were faced uh, with, with wild beasts that were coming at them, sometimes they would even let go of some of the sheep in order to just try to save his own skin and save the rest of them. Now, although we don't live in the Judean desert, um, I, I think it, we, we still live in a dangerous world, and I think maybe some of us are even feeling that even more so right now. Um, now, it's clearly not dangerous in the same ways as we kind of just described. Um, I mean, we don't face the dangers uh, of the shepherd. We're not, you know, warding off wild beasts. At least uh, I'm not. Um, I, I don't necessarily have a scarcity of, of food or, or water at, at this juncture. Um, and so I don't necessarily face the dangers of a shepherd. But I do face the dangers of a sheep, and the dangers that we face as sheep ourselves is, is hearing voices that are not our true shepherds that we start to listen to and we start to follow them. We start to hear these kinds of voices that are not the true voice of our good shepherd and we start to be convinced that that is the truth as opposed to what our shepherd truly says. Tonight, I, I, today, I'd like for us to look at uh, a couple different voices that we might tend to listen to that maybe sound like our shepherd, but are not truly him. The first voice that I, I'd like for us to look at that sound a lot like our shepherd, um, but are not, is the voice that says, our feelings 
determine reality. Now, I'll be real with you. This has been a challenging season for me, emotionally and spiritually. Um, I, I, have, I have combated a lot of emotions and feelings during this time, and, and it's been hard for me to feel so isolated. I think I've probably mentioned to this to you before, um, but, but sometimes the hardest day of my week is, is Monday. That's typically my day off um, pre-virus. And, uh, and on Mondays, I'm just waiting for interaction after everybody comes home from work, so I'll finally have somebody to play with. I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm that puppy like standing outside the window, like just jumping up and down, just like hoping that the car that they hear that's coming down their block is, is, is my wife, Mary, and she's going to pull into our driveway. I'm going to get so excited because finally I'll have somebody to play with. I mean, it's been, it's been a challenge for me during this time of, of isolation to not have the interaction that I'm used to. And I've realized that this has really affected me. I mean, I, I recognize that I've become, I've become irritable faster, um, that I'm not as patient as I, I'm, I usually am, even though most of the time I'm, I'm actually not really patient. And, uh, and I, I just struggle in, in these kinds of ways. I, I, there are times that I just feel, I just kind of feel a little bit numb. And, and there have been times that I, I, I'm working hard or I'm trying to do something, I'm trying to accomplish something. And, and I've just asked myself, like, well, what is really the point? Like, is this, is this really worth it? You see, I, I, I hope that you are stronger than me during this time that, that I have been at moments. But I think we all can start to believe that, that how we feel about a situation is the reality of the situation. You know, our feelings can convince us that we are worse off than we really actually are, that that God is not present, that he doesn't care about me, or at least have any ability to change anything. Um, how I feel can convince me that I'm a different person than God tells me of who I am. During this time, I, we can become depressed in, in these kinds of moments and allow that to dictate how we think reality is actually taking place. There's, a, there's an author and a pastor named Jared Wilson uh, that I, I've mentioned before. Um, and, and in one of his books, he starts to talk a little bit about depression. He says this, Depression is like a funhouse mirror. It presents a distorted reflection of oneself and becomes increasingly difficult to think what life is like outside the funhouse or to even believe there is a life outside the funhouse. I think there's a flip side to this too. You know, someone's experience of, of life might not re- actually reflect their situation or their reality. Uh, sometimes when in the church, when we talk about evangelism, uh, we talk about people who, who don't know Jesus and who aren't living with, with Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And, and we, when we say, you know, that these people that, that don't know Jesus, that there's something missing in their life that that there's a hole in their life and, and, and that they, they're hopeless because they, they don't have Christ. And, uh, and, and although that's true, they are missing something. They are without hope. The fact of the matter is, is that not many of them actually think that. 
I think a lot of the people that I have talked to that don't know Jesus or don't know Christ are actually blind to their reality. I mean, they're pretty hunky-dory with sleeping in on Sundays and, and doing what they want to do with their life and spending their money on, what, on themselves or whatever they want to spend money on. And there aren't any moments for them where they feel like, you know what, I'm missing something in my life. They don't feel a sense of discontentment. They don't feel a sense of, of, of hopelessness or loss. I mean, they feel complete. You see, the truth is, is that you can be lost without ever even knowing it. You know, think about this. Have you ever made a wrong turn and all of a sudden you find yourself, you drive miles and miles in the wrong direction without ever even knowing it? See, that person who, who doesn't know Christ is on their way to hell even though they don't even understand that they're in danger. You know, but on the flip side of that, you can feel like you're going through hell right now. You can feel like all is lost and, and that there isn't any hope and that I feel numb. And you can feel all those things, but at the same time, actually be in the loving arms of your Savior. See, danger can feel like safety and safety can feel like danger. You know, Satan desires for uh, our, to use our emotional states against us because he knows how consuming our emotions can be. See, this is not the voice of the shepherd. And so that's one voice that we may listen to that sounds an awfully light, lot like our shepherd, but isn't. But another voice that we listen to that sounds an awful lot like our shepherd, but isn't, is a voice that says something like this, that seeing is believing. Now, I'm going to ask you to imagine this for a second, okay? Imagine that you are one of the disciples that was there with Jesus. And that was there when Jesus died. I can't imagine that, that how I would feel that moment. I, I would just, I assume I would feel incredibly distraught and incredibly hopeless and, and feeling like all is lost. And I think that like, it makes sense that they had some of the attitudes that they had during this time because, uh, because we would probably act the same kind of way. You know, when Jesus returns from the, from the dead, the disciple Thomas tells the other disciples that unless he, can, unless he can touch the wounds of Jesus, unless he can touch them, then he's not going to believe in the resurrection. And for this, because of this moment, he's just kind of forever known as, as what, right? Doubting Thomas. You see, for Thomas, in that moment, seeing was believing. You know, honestly, I feel bad for Thomas. I mean, he's got like, go through, you know, the rest of his life with this moniker, uh, I, I even feel bad for anybody named Thomas out there, if you're somebody who's named Thomas, because you're going to have to hear the corny jokes at some point in your life, like, are you a doubting Thomas? And you're just like, oh my gosh, please, right? I mean, I can, I can identify with you, right? As my name is Christian Anderson, I would get the Hans Christian Anderson all the time, and I'm realizing as I'm saying this right now, I'm, I'm now giving you ammo for you to use against me and to tease me. This is not a license for you to do that, okay? Please 
for the love of Jesus, do not do that, okay? But for Thomas, right, in this moment of his skepticism, it's almost become who he is. Now, a week after this, Jesus has this moment with Thomas again when he invites him to touch his wounds. And it's just this amazing scene that we we see uh, given to us in John chapter 20, verse 29, where it says, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet believe. You know, maybe um, some of you know people who don't believe in God, or, or maybe you yourself have thought at one point, or maybe you find yourself in this place right now, right? Like, you know, like, I'll believe in God if I can see him. Or, you know, if, if as long, like, if, if God would just show up and, and he'd do one of those miraculous acts, and I, I would see that clear evidence of him in, in my life, then, then that would be the thing that would make me believe, that, that, that that's what I'm missing, you know, in 2006, I, I asked myself the same question when I didn't know Christ. I looked up to the skies and I, I just said out loud, like, God, if you're real, I mean, if you are who you say you are, then I, I got to know. I got to know that you're real. Just re- reveal yourself to me. The funny thing is, is that this voice that is not the shepherd's tries to convince us that seeing is believing. Yet what God says is something that's actually different. We know from the scriptures that Jesus performed miracles in, in front of people who didn't believe in him. And those people who didn't believe in him, when they saw him perform them, they still were in unbelief. That it wasn't even the fact that they saw these miracles that made them change their minds. I mean, think about it, right? We dismiss things that we see all the time. And in the Gospel of Luke chapter 16, Jesus is taking a moment to teach his disciples. And he has a couple different things that he's teaching them. And one of the things that he teaches them is uh, about this story about a rich man and about this beggar, this, this man that's, that's uh, got sores all over his body named Lazarus. And, uh, and he tells them this story that, that uh, the rich man and Lazarus, they end up, uh, they, they, both, they both die. And, and, the, and there's this scene that the rich man is looking up from Hades at, at, at Abraham and uh, Lazarus at his side. And uh, during this time, he describes that, that uh, the rich man looks up to heaven and says to Abraham and Lazarus, like, would you just give me a moment of relief from my pain? Would you just be willing to come down and just, and just give me a relief? And Abraham's response to this is, you know, you had it. You had all those good things in your life when you were there on earth. And Lazarus didn't have, have any of these things. And basically, because of the way you lived your lives, right? Like, there is too great of a chasm for me to come to you. And so, you know, the rich man then pleads again. He goes, oh, well, if you can't do that, at least, at least tell my brothers. At least tell them so that they may repent. And Abraham replies, I mean, listen, they, they got Moses and the prophets to be able to listen to. I mean, that should be basically enough. 
But the rich man says, nah. If they could actually see somebody that's risen from the dead, I mean, if, if they could actually see that, then they would repent. And in that moment, Abraham's response in verse 31 says this. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus is communicating to his disciples in this moment that believing in what we, do, what we don't see is more important than belief in what we do see. That believing is seeing, not the other way around. So this is another voice that we listen to that might sound like the shepherds, but, but it's not. One last voice that I think we often listen to that tells us something that's different from what our true shepherd would say is a voice that tells us that we know what is best for ourselves. You know, we hear voices that tell us that no one's going to help you but you. Voices that say that we don't need anybody. One pastor uh, said this on the subject of reliance, and he said this, submitting self to God is the only real freedom because the deepest slavery is self-dependence, self-reliance. That when you live your life believing that everything, whether your family or finances, your relationships, your career, depends primarily on you, you're enslaved to your strengths and your weaknesses. You're trying to be your own savior. Freedom comes when we start trusting in God's abilities and wisdom instead of our own. That real life begins when we transfer our trust from our own efforts to the efforts of Christ. You know, I think we so easily succumb to following these voices. You know, even when in my mind, when I recognize that my value is based not on, not on, on what I do, um, but what, on, what God says, and, and not what other people determine for me, and, and I know I need to be reliant not on myself, but on something greater than me, uh, I still fall at times in listening to these false voices. You know, this idea of a, of a sheep and a shepherd, I think Jesus uses this um, to not only um, use something that the people he was speaking to understood, but really because it gives, a, it gives us a picture of what our relationship should be. See, a sheep has complete reliance on the shepherd for its life. If it were not for the shepherd, the sheep would be lost and it would die. I mean, our life without Christ is that picture. Like sheep, when we are not led by Christ, we are lost. And we hear the psalmist in, in Psalm 119 crying out and, and pleading out that, that he has strayed like a lost sheep and then he is asking for the Lord to bring him back. It's so easy for us to listen to these false voices that are trying to determine things for us. We need to hear the voice of the true shepherd and of the good shepherd. And the voice of the good shepherd says this, that he lays down his life for the sheep, that he protects the sheep even to the detriment of his own life, that he searches for that sheep, even the one that is lost. 
In the Gospel of Luke chapter 15, we read about the parable of the, of the lost sheep and, and the shepherd who is just seeking and, and going out even for the one that is lost. I mean, if that is not a picture of the relationship to Christ and in the people that he desires to know him and love him, I don't know what is. In verse 16 of our text, we see Jesus saying that there are still other sheep that are, that are supposed to be in his sheep pen. Man, I think what an opportunity we got. I mean, this is an opportunity that we are being given to tell people about a hope. When people say, I have no idea what's going to happen. I can say, I can tell you about one thing that I know which is true. What an opportunity are we being given at this time? See, this is the voice which we need to hear, the voice that says that I will keep you and I will protect you and I will accept you even though you have left my flock and went out on your own. That this is the voice that doesn't just wait till you come back to him, but he's the one who searches out his sheep that are lost. There's a, a quotation here that I'm going to read that's a, a research that was done by a research group um, that kind of looked at the areas of Greece and the Levant. And they say this, I asked my man if it was usual in Greece to give names to the sheep. He informed me that it was and that the sheep obeyed the shepherd when he called them by their names. So this morning, I had an opportunity of verifying the truth of this remark. Passing by a flock of sheep, I asked the shepherd the same question that I put to the servant, and he gave me the same answer. I then had, a call one of, I had him then call one of his sheep, and he did so. And it instantly left its pasturage and its companions. And it ran up to the hands of the shepherd with signs of pleasure and with a prompt obedience I had never, ever observed before in any other animal. It is also true in this country that a stranger they will not follow but will flee from him. The shepherd told me that many of his sheep were still wild, that they had not yet learned their names. That by that, but by that teaching them, them, they would all learn them. I mean, don't you just love that? Is that not a picture of our good shepherd? The idea of what a sheep is and how he knows his shepherd too. That our God and our Lord knows our name. And he knows your voice. And he is seeking and he is calling you. Be assured that the good shepherd Jesus knows your name if you have given your life to him. We not only have a, a, a savior who is a, a shepherd and a king, but we have the good shepherd who has laid down his life for us. You know, as we look back at Easter, uh, we are reminded of the sacrifice of his life that, that was laid down for us because of his love and because of his desire for us. That, 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 that's why he's the good shepherd. That's why he is the good shepherd. That, that Jesus lived the life that we could not live to atone for the sins that we could not atone for ourselves. That is why he is so good. I know I've needed that reminder this week, and I, I, I hope that this reminds you of the shepherd that knows you and knows your name, knows your voice, 
and who's calling to you. Amen? Amen.